Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3, in particular, verses 10, through the conclusion of chapter 3, and then into chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So, beginning at Galatians, chapter 3, verse 10. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Thank you, Lucas. Um, so we're continuing in Galatians. Guess that's obvious since you read that part. Uh, if you would pray, pray with me and pray for me, Father. We come before you now, asking that your word would change us. We've tried to change ourselves, we've tried to do things, and it just doesn't work. We need you and the truth of your word to change us. Some of us here are distracted. We've had such a great week, and we're just thinking of the euphoria, and we're distracted. Some of us have had a week that's not been so good, and we're distracted and we're thinking about different things. Some of us get out in the parking lot and look at the landscape, and all we can think about is how you have painted the fall colors, and we're distracted. Clear that from our minds, Lord. May your word change us. And as John the Baptizer asked, may you increase and may I decrease as we talk about your holy word. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. So Galatians, quick review. It's the very first letter Paul ever wrote. He didn't write it to one church. He wrote it to several churches in the region of Galatia. He planted these churches. He was writing to correct errors. Not only was it Paul's first letter, it's probably the first letter in the entire New Testament. There's some question, maybe James, a year or two, let's not squabble. Leave that with people that's got a whole lot of letters behind their name and nothing better to do. Um, <laughs> so, um, but he's writing because they were having problems in these churches. In fact, the overwhelming majority of the letters in the New Testament are writing because there were problems going on. And that's one of the reasons Paul uses some harsh language here. In fact, this is the letter that has the harshest of all his, lang all his language. He's really disappointed. He's really upset that these churches that he planted not that long ago have strayed from the truth of the gospel. I want to remind you that as we look at Galatians, we are not doing a minute verse-by-verse -verse thing that would take forever, forever in a day. We're taking big overview chunks. And if we wanted to put an overview on Galatians, we would say it is the gospel without compromise. Don't add to it, don't change it, don't twist it. And we're seeing little themes throughout that. And the themes are similar. Paul is saying the same thing over and over. So if, if it sounds like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, 
I am, and that's the reason. But we're taking big chunks. We're not per- and the, I am not purposely avoiding difficult verses. If, if you think I am, and I, there's a passage that's difficult, see me afterwards. See one of the other elders, and let's talk about it. I don't want this to turn into a Q&A for the next several weeks as we finish Galatians, but there was a question that was brought up last week that I would like to address. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, starting at verse 11 through chapter 3 of verse 9. The very beginning of chapter 11, of chapter 2, verse 11, it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas meaning Peter, so when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face and he stood condemned. The question was brought up, what does he mean, condemned? Is Peter not saved? Was Peter stripped from his apostleship? The simple answer is no. That is not what that means at all. Peter was still a follower of Jesus. Peter still had all the rights and responsibilities and authority of an apostle. It was much more in Peter, condemnation, condemnation of Peter's actions. Much in the same way Jesus, in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 33, it says, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Was Jesus actually saying Satan had demon-possessed Peter and Peter was Satan personified? No, of course not. He actually says that. Your mind and your thoughts are not on that. So that's what the condemnation and that Peter being condemned means. It wasn't saying Peter wasn't saved. It wasn't saying Peter wasn't an apostle anymore. I don't want to, if you've got a lot of questions, I'll try to do them. I'm not going to try to answer them every week. We'll do that over a cup of coffee or something during the week. Was that helpful? Was that confusing? We're not turning this into a Q&A. Let's get back to our text a little bit. Uh, Galatians 3. If, you, if, you, if you've known me for any time, you know I'm a fan of Tim Keller. Um, I don't, uh, the late Tim Keller. I don't agree with everything he said. I don't agree with everything he wrote. But I like a lot of the ways that he would just kind of cut through all the baloney and get right to the heart of an issue. One of Tim Keller's best quotes is this, and I quote, There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord, your own God. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 3, that's actually what we see. We see someone who is trying to rely on all the works of the law. That's the second part of what Tim Keller is saying. They're trying to keep all the moral law. They're trying to prove that they're very, very good. Some people will say, I'm going to prove to God that I'm a good person. I'm going to prove to God that I can do it all. Then God will owe me. Then he'll owe me. Some people just love rules because it helps to justify themselves and make them think they're better than other people. And this would be those who are trying to be righteous through the law. But you can't just be righteous through the law. The verse actually says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So you have to do everything. There is not an option for, I tried my best. 
First of all, I don't know you, but I know you didn't. And I know you didn't work hard all the time, because I know there's times when you took a break to watch TV, to go to a movie, to go, to go for a walk. You weren't always doing your best all the time, so we can't even say that. But I did try. I'm not that bad. That doesn't cut it. It says trying to be righteous through the law will only lead to a curse. Trying to be righteous through the law will only lead to a curse. A curse. A, a halfway, a, I tried but failed, is not an option. It's abide by all things. And this curse can cut two ways. It's actually a double-edged sword. You can think you are right with God and you truly have lived up to the perfection that God requires through the law. That's going to lead to self-righteousness and an exalting of yourself that in and of itself is damning. The other way this cuts is guilt. I've tried so hard to obey all the law. I'm trying harder and harder. And the harder I try, the guiltier I feel because the more I fail. And so I push and I push, and I try harder and harder. And instead of digging myself out of that hole, I end up digging that hole deeper. That too is a curse, a curse that we place on ourselves when we keep thinking we can earn it, we can be good enough. We need to trust Jesus when he says that he has paid the curse. We need to trust our Bible when it says Jesus took our place. We need to trust the scriptures when it says he fulfilled the law. Look again at the end of verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Again, it says cursed be 6% of the people. It says cursed be only those who really didn't try very hard. No, it says cursed be everyone. The burden we place on ourselves, or you place on yourselves, to try to be good enough is a spiral that just goes downward and downward. And it's not helpful. And it's never what God desires for his people. He doesn't want that. Let's look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's actually quoting the prophet Habakkuk here. No one is justified before God by the law. It's not possible. No one can do it. And that's the whole point. It was The law was never meant to lead you to righteousness. So why? Well, oddly enough, if we look at verse 19, it starts with why. Let's read verse 3, verses 19 through 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, wait, no, that's got to be a misprint, right. But the scripture imprisoned, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was added because of transgressions, because of sin. The law cannot produce righteousness. The law cannot produce freedom. The law imprisons. Well, that could fit with that guilt thing. I'm imprisoned by my own guilt. That's possible. That works. It's really important that we understand, really, really important that we understand you are not a sinner because you sin. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. It may sound the same, but it's not. I don't know, I don't know if anybody here is a thief. But if you steal something, you're a thief. I wouldn't say you're a thief before you steal it. But I'm telling you now, I know you're a sinner. Because that's what's at the very core, the very heart of you. And you need a new heart. You need a transplant. Everything that you have is stained with sin. That's actually what we mean when we say original sin or total depravity. It doesn't mean you're as completely depraved as you could be. It means all the way to your core, the origin of you, is tainted. The law does not create a means of righteousness, but a means of understanding how holy God is. Verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Again, not by law. But the law was our guardian. There seems to be a little bit of trouble for whatever reason with that word guardian. If you do a Google search or if you have a, a, a multi-different translation thing, you will see that same word is translated guardian, tutor, nurse, custodian, nanny, teacher, schoolmaster, governess, disciplinarian, and even some more. And it's not that we don't know what the word is. We know exactly what the word is and we know exactly what the word means. The word means slave. Well, that's easy enough. Why not just translate it slave? Well, because this was a very specific type of slave. This was a slave that had a very specific job. This slave, this guardian, this tutor, this nanny, this governess was charged with the upbringing and the education of the child, of the heir. The person, the guardian was charged with making sure that the child grew up well-educated, well-behaved, and reflecting the character of the parent. The law reveals God's holy character, but it does not and it cannot produce any type of holiness in us. So, the righteous son became cursed for you. The righteous son became cursed for you. If we look at chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, 
we see this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Through faith. Not through works of the law, not through righteousness of the law, but we receive the promise through faith. I could not live the way the law wanted and gain favor with God. I was guilty, and therefore I was cursed. But Jesus took that curse. It says that Jesus was cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Again, how exactly did that happen? I ask you if you would please turn to Romans chapter 8. We're just going to show that this is not a unique thing in Galatians, this idea. Romans 8, starting at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus wasn't cursed because he was guilty of sin. He was cursed on our behalf. Notice that. The Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh in order to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. To, for who? For those who don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So there is something. You're, you're not just sitting still. We talk about people being followers of Jesus. You know how you can tell when someone's following? They're following. You got kids? Come on, kids, follow me. I said, follow me. I mean, you got to have little kids to have that. But following means following. It's doing something. But Jesus was, was pronounced guilty of sin, but he wasn't guilty of sin. He took our curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus really wasn't guilty of sin. But that's the great exchange. The great exchange is that Jesus completely obeyed, completely followed the law, yet became a curse. Jesus willingly obeyed the Father by being our substitute. And doing that, he became cursed. And in doing that, he completely took away the curse that was on us. You don't need to turn there. Second, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. By canceling, this is one of the ways Jesus took away the curse. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Notice there's two different things going on here. There's debts and legal demands. Those are our sins. Those are our failures. 
those are a direct disobedience of God. God has a holy standard, and the law, the guardian, reveals our sinfulness and our wickedness, and how following it is completely unattainable for us. We stood guilty before God. We owed a debt because we broke God's legal demands. But Jesus, by living a, sinful, a sinless life, fulfilled those legal demands and paid our debt. But then it says, he did, and he paid that debt by nailing it to the cross. We talked last week, if you're, a, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're trusting your faith or in Jesus, then when Christ was on the cross, you were on the cross. We, we, we talked about it last week. I'm still in Romans, pardon me. Um, it, it's the end of, uh, end of chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. So when he nailed it to the cross, he was nailing your debt to the cross. But what's this part about he disarmed rulers and authorities? Well, the, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 6 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. So these authorities are the demonic realm, if you will, spiritual forces, evil forces. Well, how did he disarm them? Well, because what they would do, much like in... Um, in Job, they would see Casper. Look at that list of sins. Hey, God, Casper ought to burn. Look at this. Look at this list. Look, look at this list. It just keeps going. God, Casper ought to burn for that. And then Jesus nailed it to the cross. And as he's going, God, look at this list. Where'd the list go? Poof, the list is gone. That's how Jesus disarmed them. They couldn't accuse me, and they can't accuse you before God if Christ has taken the curse and taken your sin. But why would God do that? Why would the righteous, holy Son of God become a curse for you, become a curse for me? Turn to chapter 4, 4 through 7. But when... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The righteous son became cursed for you so that you could become an heir and receive life through the promise. So you could become an heir and receive life through the promise. What promise? 314, the blessings and the promise made to Abraham are ours through faith, not through works of the law, not through following dietary laws, not through circumcision, not through a false gospel, but through the true gospel and through faith. And that promise was made to Abraham 430 years before Moses was given the law. And that promise was an inheritance to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul makes a big point of offspring, not offsprings. 
Jesus Christ is the true Son. Jesus Christ is the true heir of Abraham. But I'm not an heir of Abraham. I don't have any bloodline. How does this... I keep... How? How does this help me? Verse 22 of chapter 3. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe in order that we might be justified by faith. Remember, the law didn't justify. It imprisoned. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. But now that faith has come, we can be justified by faith. Get this, dear brothers and sisters. For if you are in Christ, you are a son of God. You are a child of God. The promise made to Abraham and to his offspring, which is Christ, is now also a promise to you. You were under a curse. But if your faith, your trust, and your hope is in Christ Jesus, then you are a child of the omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign. You are a child of God. And it is because the perfect, righteous, without blemish, without sin, Son of God became a curse that you are now part of that promise and can become an heir and receive life through that promise. 4.4 says, Born under the law to redeem those under the law so we might receive adoption. You could just as easily say, born under the curse, to re- to took the curse to redeem those that were cursed. It's the same type of thing because the law imprisoned us. The law didn't give us freedom. The law didn't make us holy or make us righteous in God's eyes. The the law was there because of sin, and that's how the, the enemies could point to that list. But that's gone because Christ took that curse. The end of what Lucas read, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then an heir. An heir through God. Are you a son? I guess that sounds weird today, especially with the ladies. Are you a child of God? Does the Holy Spirit live in your heart? Are you a slave or are you an heir? Where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where's your faith? Years ago, we knew a family who had spent some time living in Israel. In fact, their youngest child was born in Israel. This Abba father, and then when Jesus says it in one of the Gospels, Abba, that doesn't mean much to us. But when you're sitting around having coffee or lemonade and a pizza with another couple, 
and this four-year-old girl comes in from outside and just screams, Abba! And goes running into her father's arms. That Abba means something more to me now. I can be that little child. I don't have to live under a curse. The king, the God, who I should fear, has made me a son, has made me his child through a promise made. And I can call him Daddy. I can call him Abba. I don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear. Be an heir. Be a son. Be a child of God. We're halfway through our study of Galatians. Paul's beating us up pretty good. It gets a little better, and then it gets really good. So bear with us. We're going to see a turn towards a much more positive next week, and the last two weeks, some really positive stuff that Paul has to say. But he started out beating us up, beating up the Galatians because they were being led astray by the Judaizers, and they were following a false gospel. And he wants to be sure that we follow the true gospel and become heirs of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Help us to not live under a curse. Help us to remember what Jesus did for us, that he became the curse. And we need to live in light of that. Help us to remember that we need to follow Follow doesn't mean standing still. Follow means moving and walking. And help us not to be afraid and cower over a God who is just waiting to squash us like a bug when we've messed up, when we've sinned. You say if we confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive us. So help us when we've screwed up to come running to you and to jump into your lap and say, Abba, Daddy, please forgive me. I was thinking of myself and not you. No matter how we sin, Father, that needs to be our response. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would change us more and more into the image of your precious Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.